Now turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 1. well-known portion of Scripture to us. We'll read verses 18 to 25, and the text for the sermon is verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted as God with us. Then Joseph, being raised up from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. As so far we read the word of God, let's reread verse 21, which is our text. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the context here is known by the boys and girls and by adults. It's a well-known story. The context here in Matthew 1 is that Joseph and Mary are espoused, or you can use the word betrothed. That means that they had spoken vows to each other, vows which were just as legally binding as marriage itself. So if you were betrothed or espoused to someone, that was a very weighty, serious thing. The only difference between betrothal or being espoused on the one hand and marriage on the other hand is that 
someone who was betrothed was not yet living together with the other person. They had not yet consummated their marriage. So they'd spoken vows, but they weren't yet living together yet. This is where Joseph and Mary are at, this betrothal stage. And before they had come together, Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. Here's a man filled with all sorts of fears. That's why the angel had to come to him and say, fear not. Here's a man who has a mind spinning a thousand miles an hour, which is why at the beginning of verse 20, when the angel does come to him, it says, while he thought on these things. Fearful man, thinking about the future, mind spinning about what he's going to do about this situation. And after deliberation, he comes to the point where he intends, maybe even the very next day, to put Mary away privily, which just means out of a couple of options that he could have gone within the wall, within the law to divorce her, he will go not the public route, making an example of her, but he will go the private, quietest route that he can so as not to make a shame of Mary. In the midst of all this, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says in verse 20, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine the emotions that Joseph is going through? Now he learns that that which is in Mary's womb is not from a man or by the will of a man, but it's of the Holy Spirit and therefore all of God. His fears in a moment of time are all dispelled. And not only that, but he learns, and we learn too, a very important theological truth. That which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. But now the question is, who is this exactly in Mary's womb? What's his name? What's his work? Who is he all about? And that is our text. You want to know his name? His name is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And here, too, I can't even fathom what's going through Joseph's mind and heart. Not only has he, in a moment of time, been relieved of all of his fears, but the very next moment in time, the gospel is given to him. This is Jesus. Amazing. And so let's consider this good news together this morning under the theme, Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Let's consider in the first place, Savior, 
And then secondly, Savior of his people. And then third, certain Savior. So the angel of the Lord, having said some things to Joseph already, continues speaking to him in this dream, verse 21, by saying, and she, that is Mary, of course, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Beloved, that is a beautiful name. Precious, wonderful, nothing like it. It's a name that sparkles like a thousand diamonds put together. It's a name that has meaning to it and significance, which is deeper than the deepest ocean. It's a name that you can run into and take refuge within in the midst of all of your sin and guilt. Name to cling to in the midst of the storms and trials of life and among all the other names of the world and all the other things, only this one will really give you peace. Think about church history. A man, a woman, rotting in persecution's prison. It's all dark. They're maybe even anticipating that the next day they may very well die. This is the name that gives consolation. When you think of this time of the year, regardless of your circumstances of life, this name alone gives true joy and satisfaction. In it there's hope, in it there's salvation, and there's no name under heaven in which salvation is to be found but this name only upon which name we must believe. And when we get to heaven, we're going to explore this name. It's going to take an eternity to explore it because it has such depths to it and that won't be for you and for me boring even for a moment, but it's going to fill our soul with rapturous thrill the whole time. Wonderful name of Jesus. So you can imagine Joseph's thrill when the angel of the Lord announces this name. Remember, he's a part of the elect remnant in Israel at this time. Text, uh, the context identifies him as a just man. That means righteous or upright. He's a godly person. And then the angel of the Lord, when he begins his announcement, addresses him as a son of David. And that doesn't mean only that he's a descendant of David, but he's a man spiritually like David after God's own heart who loves the Lord. And so here's a man who's a part of this elect remnant and you can be sure he knew the prophecies of the Old Testament too, like Isaiah 9, 
verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So now, when Joseph hears this name announced, it strikes him immediately. This is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies with which I'm so familiar. This is the one whom God promised to send. Just as personally and really as the angel spoke to Joseph, the name Jesus that day some 2,000 years ago, the angel of the Lord speaks it to your heart this morning. And you have thrill and joy from it as you see it on the page of Scripture. It's not only a wonderful name, one at which we have great joy, but it's a name that is of divine origin. Now it's true that at the very beginning of our text, the angel does say to Joseph, and Mary shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's true. In other words, when this babe is born from Mary, then at that time you will call his name Jesus. And we have that confirmed in the last verse of Matthew 1. Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. All of that is true. But we must not be under the impression that Joseph was the one who came up with this name. And we must not be under the impression that this name came from Mary or any other human being or that it came by the will of man at all. And isn't that exactly emphasized when the angel comes to Joseph and says, you will call his name Jesus. In other words, this isn't up to you, Joseph. And it's not up to Mary. Well, decide upon a name and I guess we'll call him Jesus. No. You will call his name Jesus. That's the name you're given here. The point being, this name is of divine origin. It's been eternally appointed by the Lord, this name has. We're going to hear in a moment all of the meaning and all of the deep significance that's found in the name Jesus. All of that is of God, and it comes as to divine origin from him alone. Just as He's the one who's determined all of salvation, and he's the one who carries that salvation out. Also, the very name comes from him, from God. Wonderful name, name having a divine origin, but it's also one that has rich meaning to it. And now I don't want to descend quite yet into all the details of this verse. We'll get there in a moment. But let's keep at a high elevation and look at this a little more broadly for a moment. I'd like you to notice with me that we have a name here. And that's what the angel says. She shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. You have a name too. 
and so do I. But ours are just a string of letters put together that take about 0.5 seconds to say or about 10 seconds to write down on a page. Your name and mine doesn't mean a whole lot. You might go on the internet and type in your name and find the meaning of it, and it might have a meaning, but there's no depth there, true significance. And we use our names to distinguish one from another. I have this name and you have this name and we can tell each other apart. But when it comes to God's names and the names of the Savior, there's so much more meaning, depth, and significance than that. It's not just a string of letters, black on a white page, but there's a whole ocean. The Savior's name reveals. And that's what we must always remember. A name reveals or shows who he is, and what his work is to be. Name. The one that we have here is the personal name of the Savior. Heidelberg Catechism students and Essentials students, you'll know that our mediator has titles, Christ and Lord but you'll also know that he has a personal name, and that's the one in our text, Jesus. It's not one of his titles. The name here means Jehovah Salvation. Jehovah Salvation. He's the one that has been sent by Jehovah. He's the one through whom Jehovah accomplishes salvation. He's the one who's the very revelation of Jehovah, the God of salvation. And in him, you see the great I am that I am who has come down to earth to save his people. Jehovah, salvation. Now let's descend from that elevation and come right down into the verse and look at it because what the angel of the Lord is doing is giving us and Joseph a gospel message word by word and unpacking the riches of this name. She shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now this, for he shall save his people from their sins. Where we want to focus right now is simply on that idea of Savior. So let me emphasize those words. He shall save his people from their sins. He saves from sins. He's Savior. Salvation or Savior has a from and a to. A from and a to. I'd like you to think in your mind of a man in the swirling, foaming, wind-whipped, wavy ocean, and it's all dark. And there he is 
right there in the water. And as far as that man is concerned, it is a completely hopeless thing. He's in the ocean, a storm all around him. But that man is saved. There's that word. He's saved by someone else. And when we say, even in that earthly way, that the man has been saved, that always has two aspects to it. He has been rescued from the swirling, stormy, windy ocean. That's the first aspect. He's been rescued from that. And then the second aspect is that he's been delivered to the safety and happiness and security of the shore. Like that now, spiritually, when it comes to Jesus' Savior, salvation, it has those two aspects. Number one, he rescues us from the great evil that there is. What is that great evil? The verse itself said, sins, sins. That's what the great evil is. And it's not just sins. It's our sins, the Word of God says. That's a very hard-hitting word, that word, our. That's a word that comes like a knife and doesn't just prick, but stabs right at your heart and stabs right at my heart. We're not talking about just sort of a general in-the-sky abstract idea here. Well, there are sins and there's this idea of sin. We're not talking that way. These are our sins. These are my sins. These are the evils that I've perpetrated in my life in rebellion and uprising against God oftentimes knowing full well what I'm doing. These are the ones I've committed, and it's the sin that is within me. You see how there's something very hard-hitting about that word, our? And it's not just sin. And this is why it's always important for you children to learn grammar in school. Sins with an S on the end. A plural, and that means something. Because the sins of us are not just ugly, but they have so many aspects to their ugliness. And our sins are not just a monster with one head, but they're a monster with many different heads. Bible uses how many words? Synonyms for sin? Why does it have an S on the end? Because sin is such a terrible thing. It has so much to it. Savior has rescued us from that evil. And then that other aspect of being a Savior, He's delivered us to just like that man was not only rescued from the water, but delivered to the safety and security of the shore, we have been delivered to something as well, and that is nothing less 
than the great good of fellowship with God, with all the beautiful things that that includes. We've been delivered to such heights. So he's a savior. I want to point out to you three things about what kind of savior he is. What sort of savior here? Number one, he is a spiritual savior. After all, this is really no news to you. He rescues from sin, which is a spiritual evil. And he delivers to fellowship with God, which is a spiritual good. He's a savior, spiritual one. How many times in Jesus' earthly ministry did not the disciples get that wrong? They had such a earthly carnal conception of what Jesus was all about. Well, is he establishing something in Jerusalem? Is he going to do something great on this earth? And Jesus had to correct them. And it wasn't until the time of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out that they really began to understand that his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom and his work is spiritual. But the thing is, the angel of the Lord was teaching that already here when he talks about sins, spiritual Savior. Secondly, what kind of Savior he is, is a complete one. There's a comprehensiveness, a wideness to his salvation, which is to say, He's everything to us. There is nothing in Jesus that is lacking, but all things are found in him. He does it all. Complete Savior. We've already hinted at that when we've established that he rescues from sin and delivers us to fellowship with God. Already there you see that breadth of his work, don't you? Complete Savior. But think about it. If he only does one of those aspects, for example, he only rescues you from sins and does not deliver you to the great good of fellowship with God, he's only half a savior. He must and he does do both. You can think about the completeness of his work in this way too. He rescues us from every aspect of our sin. And that too is why there's an S on the end, sins, because he rescues from all the different facets of that, sins, guilt, its power, its shame, its punishment, its consequences, he rescues from it all. And he rescues from every sin, period. The ones that you committed as a teenager in your youth, but also the ones that you committed around the breakfast table this morning. 
the sins in our life that we're not even conscious of, and the Bible calls them secret errors, but also the ones that we quite consciously commit before the face of God. The ones that happen in the privacy of the four walls of our home that not a soul knows about, but also the ones that were quite public and happened in front of other people. The sins that roll off the tongue in our words, but also the ones that happen with the deeds of our hands and feet and the ones that happen only in our mind and even the most heinous of sins. You see, there's a breadth to this. He rescues not only from every aspect of sin, but from every sin. And he delivers to every part of that great good of fellowship with God. You could think about it this way too, as far as Jesus being a complete Savior. There is salvation which he has accomplished in the past and salvation that he's performing now and what he'll do in the future. Also in those terms, he's a complete Savior in whom there's lacking nothing. In the past, Jesus for some 33 years walked his whole life in obedience to the will of God in our place. And he suffered under the outpoured wrath of God against all of our sins, which climaxed at the cross. And there he atoned fully for all the sins of his people. And he earned the blessings of salvation at that cross. That's all the past that's finished. Now he's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And there is a sense in which he does a work of Savior now in heaven in the sense that he now pours out by his Spirit those blessings which he did earn at the cross, but he pours them out upon us now as a waterfall applying those benefits to us. But there's also a sense in which he saves in the future when he comes again upon the clouds of glory, bringing salvation in in all of its fullness. Have you ever thought about the fact that there is an already but not yet about salvation? We already experience the foretaste of that glorious life that we have, but that won't come in all of its fullness until one day Jesus comes again and takes our souls and reunites them to our raised and changed bodies and we live with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. That's when that fullness will be brought and all things made new. You see the breath of that? He does it all, complete Savior. What kind of Savior? Spiritual, complete, and the third is that he's the only Savior. Logic demands that. You wouldn't even 
need to go back to the text for new proof for this because the very fact that all things are found in him and the very fact that he accomplishes all of our salvation as that complete savior demands the fact that he's the only one too. There's no other name in which salvation can be found. But the text does emphasize that as well when it says, for he, in the Greek language, the original, it's emphatic so that you could read it this way. He himself shall save his people from their sins. It's like on a computer you italicize and bold and underline and put a box around it. That's what you could do in your mind to the word he, stressing he's the only Savior. I realize that's controversial today. I don't know if times at university and college have changed at all from when I went there a number of years ago. But when I was in university, you could go there and so long as you just sort of keep your religion to yourself and everyone else has their own religions, you're going to do just fine. And the viewpoint of the world in so many ways is, well, there are so many different paths that you can follow. But just as soon as you stand up and you say, Jesus, in his name, is the only salvation that there is, and he's the only one, well, that's when you run into trouble. Because now there's something exclusive, and you've offended us. That's a controversial thing. But it's the word of God, and it's the truth. Salvation is only in his name. Not in any other religion. Not in any idol, whether it be in the refrigerator or the living room or the garage, any idol to which I might be tempted to cling. Salvation is not Roman Catholic Church found in Mary or in any other saint. It's not my favorite politician or the sports figure that I see on the computer or TV or even in my minister and my good works that I perform, even if they be coming to church twice on Sunday and memorizing my catechism diligently and attending every single Bible study and bringing soup to people's homes, my good works are not my Savior. Even though I have a doctrinal system, and I'm thankful for that, and I'll preach it and teach it, and we can be so grateful for our heritage not to take anything away from that, but a doctrinal system, that is not my Savior either. Jesus alone. And the ones whom he saves are his people. Angel of the Lord wants to stress that. She shall bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You really can't understand that little phrase, his people, without understanding first this. 
Jesus Christ is first in God's counsel. You think of God's plan for all things or his counsel. Jesus is first in that in terms of importance. You might say he's the one who's at the very center of the counsel and plan of God. Sometimes we talk this way and there's nothing wrong with saying it. Jesus Christ is the elect of God. Now what God did in eternity, so we're not even talking about time and history here, we're talking about eternity. In eternity, God gave to Christ a people, a, a certain fixed unchanging number of persons. He gave them to Christ in eternity. And that's why the angel of the Lord says they are his people. They belong to Jesus. God has given them to Jesus in eternity. Bible, in more than one place, teaches this idea that from before the foundation of the world, God gave to Jesus a people. If you'd like to turn there with me, John chapter 17. John 17, these are the words of our Savior himself in what we call his high priestly prayer. Look at three verses here. Verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Then verse 9. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And then finally, verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. These people... His people, given to him in eternity, are what we call the elect. They belong to Jesus from eternity to eternity. They're united to Jesus from eternity to eternity. Isn't that such a comforting thing, beloved? There was never a point at which you were not united to Jesus. There was never a point at which you did not belong to him. You've always belonged to him. His people, precious truth. But I'd like you to notice that you and I and all the elect, are called people. We're so used to just saying that God's elect are his people that we hardly even think about why do you think we're called 
people. Why that word used? You see, the elect number is not a vague mass. It's not just a bunch of individuals. Rather, when you hear people, you think nation. A, 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 a body. Those who belong to Jesus, who have been given to him from before the foundation of the world, they're this beautiful, united, living body. That's why they're called people. In this elect number, there is then, of course, a unity. You think of a nation. A nation is a body that has a unity or a oneness to it. So they've got, let's say, one language, they have customs that they have in common, a unity. Well, like that, among these people or this body, there is also a oneness. They've all been chosen by God in eternity. They've all been given to Jesus from before the foundation of the world. They've all been given to Jesus to be saved by him. You see, this is their commonality, their oneness. And just like a nation of people on this earth has a unity in diversity, that is, yes, they're one, but in that oneness, they have all these differences. So also in this people, his people, this body, there is a unity in diversity, all sorts of different members with different gifts and positions, but they're all in that one body to show forth how beautiful it is to the glory of God. His people. Now when we return to the text, those are the ones and all of them, but only them, which Jesus saves from sin. Right here in Matthew 1, verse 21, is the great big rock upon which the error of universalism smashes to pieces. Universalism, which teaches that Jesus' blood saves all human beings head for head. And the text smashes that error and says, no, he doesn't. His people alone. Matthew 1 verse 21 is a resounding refutation of Arminianism, which says Jesus died for all men, but, says Arminianism, not all men are actually saved and they won't all go to heaven. And the explanation is that even though Jesus died for all men, he only made salvation available to them and it's up to them to accept that available salvation. That's Arminianism. And over against that, the text says, no, he didn't die for all men, only for his own, for his people. Over against all those heresies, the word of God teaches here what we call limited or particular atonement. So the young people learn tulip, and this is the L of tulip. As difficult as the doctrines can be, 
you can't look at our text without seeing election and reprobation here. And so critical and so foundational is this doctrine that the angel of the Lord sees fit to give it to Joseph at the beginning of the book of Matthew, so early on in the history, the child is not even born yet. And right there, election and a reprobation. He saves only his people. It's on the basis of a passage like this, if you'd like to turn here, that we have the teaching of the canons. This is page 64 the back of your Psalter. It's good for us to keep the confessions before our mind, uh, living documents in the church. Canons of Dort, head to Article 8. This is page 64. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, shall effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, and nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. There it is on the basis of a text like this. People of God, isn't that doctrine humbling? If any one of us reads this tonight, this morning and gets proud about this, there is something seriously wrong. There are many that are not chosen. But I'm not better than them. In fact, I myself was involved in the common ruin I wasn't chosen of God and given to Christ and saved by Christ because of me at all. It doesn't have anything to do with me or what I am or my name or my reputation or what I've done. It's got zero to do with that. Election is of grace and that I've been given to Christ in eternity is of grace and that I've been given to Christ to be saved by him and that he's done all necessary to save me by his blood is grace. And that's the thing that will send you out these doors this morning saying, not how great am I, but how great is my God and I will be humble, and that will be a fragrance that spreads through the whole of my life. And as if to put the cherry on the top, he doesn't just save his people, but he certainly does it too. That comes out in one simple word, shall 
he shall save his people from their sins. There is a certainty to what he's going to do. And so, when murderous Herod tries to have his way in not so many months from here, it's not going to pan out for Herod. And when Satan tries to come at Jesus and tempt him at the beginning of his ministry in order to derail Jesus from that path to the cross, Jesus will resist him and show he has the victory over Satan. And when the Jewish leaders make all their plans and counsels and do their best to try to stop Jesus from doing the will of his Father, they too will not succeed. He will go to that cross on a straight course. It's certain. And with respect to all God's plan concerning our salvation, nothing will frustrate that. He will do it all. And you may be assured of that this morning. And in terms of what Jesus actually does on the cross, his death is atonement. Christ by his death actually saves those who are his. He actually saves from sin all those who are his. And with respect to each individual, he saves them completely and fully and to the uttermost. He shall. And then you say, of course. Of course, it's all certain. After all, God gave this people in eternity to Jesus to be saved by him, will that decree of election ever be changed or fall away? Of course, those elect belong to Jesus from eternity to eternity. Will Jesus lose any of those, even one given to him? You know the answer to those questions. Of course not. And then, the name itself, Jehovah Salvation, of course, he certainly saves and will not fail. His name is Jesus. You see now, beloved, there really is no more precious and wonderful name than this. Look strongly on that name this morning and away from yourself. Trust in it. Believe on that name. Jehovah's salvation. Amen. Our Father, strengthen our faith in Him. Hold before us and by Thy Spirit, Put in our hearts the marvelous beauty, knowledge of that name. Strengthen our assurance concerning his work. Father, we thank thee for that gift of thy grace. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.